Welcome back to Having a Gas, the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries. And today, I'm having a gas with Rory Sutherland and Rob Henderson. To um, intellectual heavyweights and for someone who was once kicked out of a private school, that's uh, something to be sitting down with Cambridge scholars, uh, Rory Sutherland, vice chairman of Ogilvy, and of course, Rob Henderson, one of the up and coming academics at Cambridge. And um, with us uh, recently having a James Bond film out, I thought I might draw attention to perhaps the real life James Bond here, you know, so the military service, educated at Oxbridge, all that stuff. So yeah, it's great to have both of you here. Yeah, thanks, Greg. It's great to be here. I, I, I've got to say, I'm really impressed you were kicked out of a school. What, 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 what was it? Because in the advertising industry, in most in most occupations, that would be considered something of a blot on your copybook. <laughs> right. But in advertising, it's actually considered a positive boon. It, well, it was at one point, yeah. yeah. Um, it was just not 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 wanting to do the work. I was like, I can't be bothered writing all this stuff. And so they said, well, make him sit at the front of this classroom away from everyone, then maybe he'll write stuff. Couldn't be bothered writing. So eventually they said, well, it's not working out. So Off you go. Off, off we go, yeah. So I went to a much smaller school. It was like... Like, um, good night, Mr. Tom, in a weird way. So, yeah. That always mm. worries me about IQ tests because the really intelligent response to an IQ test is actually, I can't be bothered to do <laughs> yeah. this. Okay, what's the point? Have you ever done one okay. of those? You know, I always worry about it. Well, what sensible kid would want to sit for, you know, a couple of hours and yeah. answer questions? I mean, I was in sort of a similar position as you, I think. I, I didn't get kicked out, but I just barely passed my classes, got suspended a bunch of times, detention, constantly in trouble. Yeah. And yeah, I felt the same way I couldn't be bothered to do all of this sort of work and yeah it just didn't didn't interest me it took me a long time to sort of find my academic bearings well why don't yeah. we start there because one of the reasons we're all here is because I was doing a podcast with you in about March last year and you said you must talk to this guy Rob Henderson because of everything you just said and um I said okay we'll do did do and now here we are and so uh yeah I mean for the benefit of the the tape and people who aren't familiar uh Rob you know your your story is becoming more and more well known and I believe have you been approached to write a memoir yeah, yeah, I actually just submitted the manuscript to my editors at Simon and Schuster, so I'm currently, you know, sort of waiting to see what they'll what they'll say about this draft. But uh, yeah, it's it's something that I've written about in multiple publications, different outlets, sort of the condensed version, which I can talk a little bit about today. Which is, um, I mean, yeah, like you said, I'm currently a PhD student at Cambridge, uh, studying social and evolutionary psychology, and you know, I'm writing a newsletter and doing all these sort of side projects as well. In addition to you know my dissertation, which I'm you know f- frantically trying to procrastinate. I don't want to write it, but you know, it's what I'm working on. And before this, I was an undergrad at Yale studying psychology. I was a research assistant at a psych lab there. But before this, my life was a lot different. But backing up, I was born into Los Angeles. My mother was an immigrant from South Korea. She had uh, become addicted to drugs as a young woman living in LA. And I was subsequently placed into foster care. I'd never met my father. And so I spent my early childhood sort of bouncing around foster homes. And I was adopted into this working class family in Northern California. But then there was sort of divorce and separation mm-hmm. and you know reunion and different different sort of step parents and just a lot of drama and disorder uh, even even after I had been adopted out of foster care. And you know, throughout all of this time, I was a terrible student, constantly getting into mischief with my friends and yeah. doing things that I you know wouldn't recommend. And then mm-hmm. um, just barely graduated high school and kind of a spur of the moment decision joined the military. And that sort of pulled me out of all of that chaos. And then from there, I sort of figured out what I needed to do to to sort of be successful in my life and, and sort of take the steps I needed to take. Now, I'd always imagined that the moment you got into the military was the moment you just became this sort of, you know, well-groomed, upstanding gentleman. But then I saw <laughs> one of your on one of your newsletters, you were saying that on leave, you would go and, you know, spend, what, 10 days drinking uh, 12 to 15 beers a day. 
Oh yeah. I mean, even even when I wasn't on leave, it would be you know six to eight to ten beers. A day. I mean, it was. I had a. I had um like some roommates. Uh, you know, so, so early on the you know we talk a little bit about this. I was in the military, and for the first maybe three or four years, um, you're basically required to live on base. Um, it's almost like this sort of similar to like the college or university mm -hmm. system, where from like eighteen to twenty one, twenty two, uh, you are sort of uh, constrained. You know, you have a lot of uh, you know non commissioned officers and superiors basically controlling your every move, and and then as you sort of ascend and rise in the ranks a little bit and reach that sort of early 20s stage, um, then they allow you to move off base. At least, you know, I was in the Air Force, so that's what they allowed us to do. And so I got a house with uh, three of my friends. And so it was just like a bunch of guys in their early 20s right. uh, in a big house, uh, you know, drinking, partying, like, you know, just all this crazy stuff happening. And yeah, I would go on leave, you know, sort of military vacation time. I would just take two weeks off uh, a year and just go drinking with my high school friends in California. And I don't even remember a lot of the, that, that time. So, it, I mean, when I say it took a while to get my bearings, it like it really did right. take a while. You know, I didn't really start thinking about my future until I was maybe 23 or 24. Right. Yeah. Um, so even when I sort of tell that condensed story of, oh, I joined the military and suddenly everything got better. It wasn't quite that way, but that's yeah. sort of the short version. Yeah, of course. And it sounds um, kind of similar to what it must have been being a uh, early 20-something in advertising in the 80s, perhaps, Rory, was it? Like, oh. Yeah, it's very interesting, actually. The advertising industry was, it's never been perfectly meritocratic, but it's always, at its best, had room for kind of oddballs and misfits. But also what the ad industry taught me is the huge difference between what you might call theoretical academic intelligence, which I would argue is something of an artificial measure in many cases, and, and applied or tacit intelligence. And one of the things that always worries me about IQ tests, as I was just saying yeah. earlier, the only sensible response to an IQ test, the really intelligent person would be, yeah. I can't be bothered to do this. Yeah. What's the <laughs> point? Okay. Um, is that you immediately, you go into this business world thinking that academic intelligence translates into economic value and general usefulness, and very rapidly you realize it doesn't. So there have always been people in the ad industry uh, who are, so, I mean, by the way, it, you know, you need, and it's useful to have, mm -hmm. a reasonable cohort of chin-stroking Oxbridge types floating <laughs> around a place like this. But there are also people who just have innate and native talent, which doesn't really translate to, nor is it measured by, uh, the academic system. Yeah. So I'm increasingly coming to the conclusion that books like Brian Kaplan's The Case Against Education oh, yeah. and the idea that actually Harvard is basically the educational wing of Louis Vuitton. Yeah. Okay. I'm increasingly coming around to the view that it's true. In fact, it's only a moment, it's only a matter of time before either Harvard buys Louis Vuitton or or vice versa. Yeah. Because it's um it, it, it's a luxury, it's a signaling good. It's a it's credentialism. Yeah. I think a lot of things are changing now with with IQ because sort of with the rise of social media and with the internet and this sort of explosion of ability or explosion of opportunities to to um, sort of display your abilities. Um, so in the past, say before the internet, before say the late '90s, um, there was I think a tighter correlation between IQ and income and education and all of those things because you had to be sort of selected by the institutions. You had to get into college. You had to sort of jump through all of these hoops in order to be uh, sort of like considered to be legitimate to be yeah. hired for all these sort of uh, conventionally you know, conventionally successful professional jobs. And nowadays, I mean, if you're an 18-year-old kid and you have some kind of talent or quirk or ability, you can just jump on YouTube, you can go on social media, you can go, you know, sort of find a way to broadcast your, your sort of competence and your talents, and someone will find you that way. And you don't have to go through college, you don't have to sort of get those normal jobs anymore. 
There, I'm, I'm also uncomfortable. Do you know a really weird thing is my, a, a great aunt of mine, or possibly a great great aunt, was um, an anthropologist uh, called Beatrice Blackwood, and she spent time in Princeton, I think, working with. Uh, the early IQ researchers. And yep. she did IQ mm. research herself among, for example, Native Americans and uh, other ethnic groups. She was always really uncomfortable with it, I'm proud to say. <laughs> um, uh, but she was involved with a guy, I can't remember his name, I think he was at Princeton, who was effectively the originator of the SAT test in the US, yes. although she was British. Mm. Kind of weird family connection. I only <laughs> met her once. Yeah. She was kind of terrifying, actually. <laughs> um but the interesting thing she mentioned, just in passing, was that there were quite a few intelligence measures where eth ethnic groups, minority ethnic groups, did better than conventional whites. Yes. Or where people on the street did better than academics. Mm -hmm. Strangely, those got left out of the tests. So <laughs> right. memorizing poetry, for example, African Americans were much better at it. Than, right. Well, now, did I, did memorizing poetry make it into the IQ test? Funny. Because yeah, um, yeah. no, they effectively, the test was designed to validate the prejudices of the people who are designing the tests, really? which is that kind of white guys in academia were obviously at the pinnacle of, <laughs> of uh, human attainment. You know, what all, all of evolution was? basically led up to you becoming a Princeton professor. <laughs> and so <laughs> right. I'm, I'm, and, and I'm mm. deeply uncomfortable. I'm also uncomfortable because of Nassim Taleb's work yes. that he's done. Mm. Has he blocked you on Twitter yet? No, no, no. Oh, we're right, quite okay. friendly, actually. Oh, great. You're, you're, you're the one. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not actually blocked. Um, which shows that there is a correlation between IQ and uh, and what you might call worldly attainment, but it's almost all delivered at the left-hand side of the of the curve. Right. Yeah. So IQ, very low IQ, and indeed the military won't take you below eighty-five. Is that right? I think there's yeah, a, there's some a around there, like the thirty-third percentile, roughly. Yeah. So you know, very low IQ does predict poor life outcome, which is what it was designed for. Mm. Okay, it was designed mm. at the first point to spot people for whom conventional schooling would be a problem, so that we might find alternative. So that we might find alternative special rise. schools, etc. And indeed, my yeah. great aunt, weirdly, although she was a Brit in the US, yeah. was peripherally involved in that. And Nassim shows that actually to the right-hand side of the curve, the the proxy, you know, intelligence for attainment pretty much completely breaks down. Mm. Okay. Mm. Now, I, I, I might argue, even against Nassim, that I think there probably are jobs like high-energy physics, yeah. where actually having a freakishly high IQ might be actually a bit of a prior, table stakes. Yeah. Okay. However, if you if you look at money, for example, or wealth, mm -hmm. now if you think about this, there must be a lot of proxies which work negatively but don't work positively. So mm, yeah. if you're really, really shit at playing baseball, okay, it's fairly safe to say you're not going to be a great soccer player. You're just you just lack basic hand-eye coordination or you can't move very fast, okay? So, you know, shit, it's reasonable to say, shit baseball player, probably not worth putting him into elite soccer training. Yeah. Mm. Is it fair to say that a great baseball player also makes a great soccer player? Yeah, that's a much less comfortable, that's a much less comfortable um, an interesting assertion analogy. to make. Mm. Yeah. So there are things that patently work at the negative angle, but they look statistically like a correlation. Yeah, on this point, there was a, an interesting paper that I just saw about, so of course, like a, a lot of people are aware that education and IQ tend to correlate positively with one another, sort of the, you know, the sort of more whatever conventionally intelligent you are, yep. the more likely you are to go to college and those kinds of things, but they actually have opposite effects on, um, on what evolutionary psychologists stuff that I study, uh, opposite effects on uh, reproductive success, essentially the number of children you have and the number of sexual partners you tend to attain. 
Uh, basically, well, the more correlates negatively with 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 education. Well, so the more education you have, <laughs> the, the fewer, fewer sexual partners, the fewer sexual partners, and the fewer oh, children you tend to have. Wasted money. Whereas, <laughs> for income, it's the opposite. So the more money yeah. you make, the more partners you tend to have, and the more children you tend to have. So even those those two things correlate positively with one another. They have sort of opposite effects on your reproductive success. So uh, you know, depending on what you're interested in, uh, it may be wiser to make more money than get more, in- more education. <laughs> As an advertising guy, I'm also going to make a very mischievous suggestion because you mentioned Rob, don't you? That at the bottom end of the social spectrum. Spectrum, class is correlated is assumed to correlate with money. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. what people are pres- presumed to be chasing is yeah. wealth. And you okay. talked about this in your last. And then the middle uh, class yeah. see education, and okay. it may it may be because it's harder and harder to signal with money. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Because basically, non ridiculous good shit is affordable to people on median in- income. Everyone can get a TV that, now. Yeah, everyone can yeah, get a fridge. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's worth remembering. My father always has a theory that the reason property prices were low. Uh, in the 1950s and 60s was that there were really, really important things that people wanted, like washing machines and televisions, which were seriously expensive. Mm. If you kitted out your kids for school in 1970 in the UK and you bought the recommended school uniform, two pairs of shoes, etc., that was like the price of a holiday. Yes. Okay. There wasn't the equivalent of kind of, you know, TK Maxx. Yeah. By the way, one of the greatest brands, along with Henry Ford, I put TK Maxx up there as an extraordinarily important brand because it means that actually designer clothing is no longer a delineator of wealth. At least half of what I'm wearing is from TK Maxx. You you also have. TK Maxx is the way of gaming the system. Yeah, and it's 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 Primark with brands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I couldn't. I when TK Maxx opened in the UK, I started getting confused because I get into a taxi and the taxi driver had. An Armani jacket. Yeah, yeah. Okay, a taxi driver is not a badly paid profession. You might own an Armani, but you wouldn't wear it to drive the cab, would you? Mm. And then, sure enough, I discovered a few years later that this was the explanation. But the interesting mm. thing is, then you, as you go up, education becomes the delineator, mm-hmm. and then higher up, it becomes weird things like obscure tastes. Yes, tastes you know, and customs. I can't tell if you're trying beliefs, luxury beliefs. Luxury beliefs. I was just saying, I can't. I can't tell if you're deliberately softballing <laughs> Rob's expertise. No, 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 no I, like, will, yeah. I will. But the one thing that had occurred to me as a, a materialistic ad guy is <laughs> that um, there's a lovely actually example of this, yeah. which is that in discussing comedy. Jerry Seinfeld says to Louis C.K. Now, Louis C.K., I think, had a blue-collar background. Jerry Seinfeld was kind of fairly privileged Long Island background. And Jerry Seinfeld uses this analogy. He says, using the F-bomb in comedy, he says, it's kind of like a Corvette. Okay, which is you know, it, you know, in other words, it's not you know, you know, he, he intended that as a denigrating phrase. Hmm. And Lewis C.K. was listening to this, going, "What the fuck is this guy talking about? Right, right, Corvette's right. a great car." Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. he grew up in a milieu where owning a Corvette was a perf- and quite rightly, in my opinion, is a perfectly reasonable aspiration. Now, the one thing I will say, okay, is that competing for money is much more meritocratic than competing for academic honors, hmm. on the grounds that there are lots and lots of ways you can end up with a Corvette. Okay, you can start a scaffolding firm on Long Island. Okay, you can open a successful dry cleaners. Mm. You know, you can marry someone rich. Okay, there are tons and tons of ways you can get from no Corvette to Corvette, and moreover, you can do it at any stage of your life. Whereas you can only really go to an undergrad. You only go to Yale when you're 21, and. (laughs) 
assuming you were surrounded by a bunch of people who wanted you to go to Yale who, or who thought that going to Yale was a great thing to do, yeah. which for 70% of the population simply isn't true. And you have to jump through specific hoops to get into a place yeah. like that. Right? Yeah, you so, went on the GI Bill, didn't you? Yeah, I went on the GI Bill and I had to do all the research on my own. So when I started applying, I was, I think I just turned 24. Right. And fortunately, by that point, I had you know mature to the point where I was capable of sort of focusing and doing research and reaching out to people, cold emailing people. So yeah. there were a lot of people who helped me along the way sort of serving that function that rich parents tend to serve for their own kids, right? Yeah. Like I was cold emailing, you know, people at Yale Law School, veterans saying like, hey, can you help me out? Like, I, you know, just sort of like telling them what my story was. And, and fortunately, a lot of them were very helpful. Yes. And yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with, with Rory's point here that uh, you know, money is a more meritocratic, I mean, it's more meritocratic for a lot of ways. I mean, so he sort of alluded to, you know, the, the upper class sort of defining uh, class in terms of your sort of tastes and habits and customs. And one of the more interesting examples of this, I, I remember reading this um, discussion, I think it was an interview in The Atlantic, uh, the journalist was interviewing a couple of sociologists, and they were talking about this feature of sort of upper class uh, workplaces, <coughs> um, sort of having silent rules or, or, or codes, coded yeah. rules. And one of the examples they gave is that, you know, I think it was a movie studio or some kind of film studio where uh, there was no dress code. People could just wear whatever they wanted. There was no, no, no stated formal objective rule. But there was a guy there that they, they had talked to. Uh, he was a working class African-American guy. And he, he dressed casually just like everyone else. But he um, sort of felt uncomfortable. And I think he felt somewhat ostracized because he, the way that he dressed casually was not the way that his coworkers dressed casually. And because there was no sort of code of rules like here's what you're supposed to wear to work, it creates this sort of interesting dynamics where some people feel ostracized even though they don't know why, even though there's no rules for why they should feel ostracized or wow. why there's no sort of reason for it um, explicitly. And when you have sort of these invisible rules, uh, you sort of the rules sort of become more implicit and people will start to judge one another for for reasons that um, that, they, that only they know, only people in the know will understand this. I've had some debates about this with people where they say like, well, if you have objective rules, then you're sort of excluding people economically, because if you say, well, you have to wear a suit to work, well, not everyone can afford a suit and these kinds of things. But I argue that just like Rory, that it's easier to earn the money to obtain a suit, even if it's, you know, from TK Maxx or something, you can still find a suit. But it takes much more sort of effort. There's a there's a higher social cost to learning those invisible rules versus sort of the economic cost of obtaining. They're sort arguably of illegible rules. to anybody right. who didn't grow up in that particular circle. As well, are we talking about yeah. like the unwritten rules of like how to wear a suit? Because I might be guilty of that. Because I'm a real stickler for you know button undone when you're sat down, button done up when you're stood up. <laughs> Is that the kind of thing? It's like you can buy a suit, but you, if you don't know how to wear it, then you're not one of us. There's something like that as well. But I think um you know things like the internet have have flattened that out. I remember yeah. uh, when I was an undergrad, one of my friends. Uh, he came from a sort of blue-collar working-class background, but he was a student at Yale with me. And I remember both him and I were watching these YouTube videos of how to tie a bow tie because we were <laughs> going to this formal event. And so we're like going step by step, like, oh, doing that whole thing. And, you know, in the past, it would have been, you know, someone's rich dad showing their son how to do a bow tie or yeah. a butler or something doing it for them. Uh, but now you can just go on YouTube and find, you know, yeah. someone who, who can teach I you I did it in way. 2009 for prom on, what's it called? Like how to something or other, you know, life how or something like that. Yeah, yeah trying to figure out the perfect way to do the bow tie so I would look like Daniel Craig, which I didn't because I was 16. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, so to, to pick up on your area of interest, Rob, which obviously dovetails amazingly with yours, mm. Rory, um, we were talking there about how the value of money is somewhat less significant at the, you know, lower down in the hierarchy now because everyone can basically afford luxury goods. Mm. Like what was in the 1960s, like 
like a James Bond gadget par excellence, everyone has one now. Everyone has an iPhone. Hmm. Um, and so you've been doing a lot of work on trying to figure out what it is that now separates the upper class from the middle class if hmm. it's not money. Right. And you've been working on this luxury beliefs thing, which which Rory nodded to. So, yeah. yeah. And your, your additional insight, not only coining the phrase luxury beliefs, is also to spot the fact that many of these beliefs, first of all, they're not really practiced by the people who hold them. Is this walk the walk the fifties? The divorce rate. Yeah. I mean, everybody would believe in free and liberal divorce. Right? Yes, for example, even actually at the top, they might even state that they believe in polyamory. Yes, but if they if you look at their own behaviour, they're actually deeply conservative. Yeah. and tend to actually the divorce rate among the American upper class is very very low. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so. The beliefs in many ways are kind of a form of costly signaling, which is a belief that would be a divorce would be affordable if you're in the richest 10% of the population and might be actually survivable by the kids. Yes. Okay. But these beliefs, if adopted by people with less money or less status, might indeed be catastrophic. Right. Well, it's funny. So, so on, on this divorce issue, I've seen um, uh, sort of upper class people, people uh, uh, of means uh, who, who have gotten divorced. And, and have you guys heard of this phenomenon called nesting? Nesting. Nesting. So, so typically, especially like sort of the middle and working class, when parents get divorced, they sort of have two separate residents and the kids spend one week with one, you know, with mom and one week with dad. And, you know, there's all this confusion about Thanksgiving and Christmas and, you know, how how to handle holidays. But nesting for rich people is... um, they keep the house with the kids that they'd always lived in, and then each of them get their own separate residence, and then each of them spend one week living in their original house with the kids on and off. So now they have three houses, yeah. and one week mom lives with the kids in their house that the kids know and love and everything, and they sort of grew up in, and then the next week the dad moves in there. And only rich people can afford a situation like this so that it reduces the amount of instability for young children, sort of keeps their schedules predictable and all those things so that the kid, you know, oftentimes when parents get divorced, they say nothing's going to change. It's all going to be, you know, you're going to be okay. Rich people can say that now. And it's kind of somewhat true um, they, with this with this sort of new nesting phenomenon. If you have the means, you can sort of, you can soften the buffer yep. of divorce and, and the sort of impl- uh, impact on the kids. Not really available if you're in council housing. No, exactly. <laughs> and in fact, you know, yeah. to hang on to this in a slightly more personal way, um, when, you know, you're asking the star, why did you get kicked out of private school? It actually only just occurred to me when you're talking about the nesting thing that um, we moved, we we were living in a sort of semi-detached, nice three-story house in Marple. And then, uh, you know, immediately after the separation, it was me and my brother sharing a room and my mum sleeping in a storeroom in a one-up, one-down that was rented. And uh, immediately... Your dad had the better lawyer then, did he? <laughs> not, not exactly. I think it's more like, you know, uh, mum's prerogative was to leave. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, then, yeah, uh, dad was a bit like Don Draper at the end of season one of Mad Men, just uh, with yeah. Bob Dylan ringing in ears. But, um, yeah, so the point is, it's like then, all mm-hmm. of a sudden, compared to my peers, I had dropped a couple of perhaps social classes or something like that. Fortunately, my brother had just gone to high school when this happened, so he was kind of out. But, yeah, yeah. when you think about stuff like that, I'd never, it never even occurred to me that people saying, you know, well, you know, not, not everyone gets on. You should be able to divorce mm-hmm. if you can afford to yeah. preserve the, let's say, the illusion of what the kids had before. Right, and exactly. that's so expensive. Mm-hmm. My, my daughter had a few very rich friends. I'm pretty prosperous. I'm not claiming, you know, <laughs> that I come from an underprivileged background or anything like that. But um, one of her grumbles occasionally was that because her parents weren't divorced, she got half as many holidays. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're actually in a rich family with divorce, parents yeah. <coughs> vacation time is effectively doubled that gets you know? that, that sometimes gets leveled as a criticism if you're in, in a middle class environment I know yours was quite different Rob but mm-hmm. saying oh well you know you have two houses as if it's kind of like a luxury you know I mean it, it creates so many 
any complications. I mean, I was just talking to my sister about this, my, my adoptive sister. So, you know, basically uh, our our adopt, you know, my adoptive parents, her biological parents, they divorced and then they remarried. And so my sister has to basically her and her boy and her her boyfriend's parents are divorced and remarried as well. So basically, in total, they have to deal with um, you know four different kinds of uh, families that they have to visit during the holidays. So yep. it's like Christmas, like okay, we're going to spend one day with your dad and his your stepmom and my mom. Yeah. And and of course, like it's not just um, sort of costly in terms of time. It's costly in terms of money. It's costly in terms of all all these different things, right? Yeah. Emotionally, of course. Mm. And if you're if you're rich, you can handle all of those things much better. And if you're if you're poor, or sort of lacking means, um, you know, just sort of imposes many more burdens on your life. But I mean, maybe maybe I should just quickly define uh, luxury beliefs. Yeah, so, let's do that. Um, so luxury beliefs. Uh, I define as uh, ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while inflicting costs on the lower classes. And so, so very briefly, so you know, historically, the upper classes have uh, in part displayed their upper class status. They're sort of you know, the aristocrats and so on. They, they did it with luxury goods, with material goods. And I was actually just reading about how um, about sumptuary laws, mm. which uh, historically, so so in Europe and and in Asia as well. Venice um, had a lot of them, didn't it? Yeah, Ven Venice yeah. had them, Genoa, uh, and, and Japan as well uh, during the Tokugawa regime, uh, you know, the sort of the samurai era. Um, the samurai were basically the aristocrats of Japan, and they didn't like that uh, middle class merchants were becoming wealthy. So they, you know, sort of in their social position was middle class, but economically they were actually richer than the yeah. aristocratic samurai. Mm -hmm. And so then the samurai basically sort of agitated and said, like, you know, we need to pass these sumptuary laws to prevent the merchants from wearing silk, <laughs> because silk was this sort of, you know, uh, glamorous garment that only the, the aristocrats and the upper class could wear, and we don't like that the merchants can afford them. And so they were passing all these laws to basically prevent um, them signaling right, in the uh, same manner, sort of, yeah, solidify that social hierarchy. But nowadays, because we're sort of a more egalitarian, you know, some would say more egalitarian <laughs> culture, and of course we would never pass a law like that to say like the lower classes can't buy clothes or you know do these kind of things. But the upper classes still feel this pressure to uh, to sort of signify their upper class status, to display and broadcast it in some way. And there's even research indicating that uh, upper class people um, are more interested in social status, mm -hmm. interested in obtaining it, and more interested in preserving it mm -hmm. than the lower classes. Uh, they're more interested in sort of obtaining wealth and and sort of uh, social prestige as well. And so how do they do this? I argue that they do it with sort of unusual opinions, uh, unconventional ideas, um, things that that would often be sort of catastrophic for people who are lower on the social ladder. But because if you're sort of well-educated and affluent and of means and you have sort of social access and all these things, mm -hmm. you can afford to, you know, of course, broadcast those abilities in the right way. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not enough to sort of have those luxury beliefs, but you have to express them in the right way. Um, it's funny, I was just talking to my, my mom when I was visiting uh, in California recently. Um, my mom is sort of a centrist Democrat, sort of center liberal. And I enjoy talking with her about all of these um, sort of the lexicon mm -hmm. of elite academia. You know, I'll ask her, have you heard of this term? Have you heard of this phenomenon? Have you heard of this movement? And she's yeah. like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Any yeah. examples? Uh, I mean, like, uh, you know, like, uh, like, like, like BIPOC, for example, this, this acronym. So she knows people of color. She knows POC, but she doesn't know BIPOC. She doesn't know what that means. That's um, black and indigenous. Black, indigenous, and then people of color. Sort but of does that ex exclude, say, Caribbean immigrants to the U.S.? Because <laughs> they're not technically indigenous. Uh, uh, no it's a term knows. that's designed to provoke the question. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I think it's well. If you have uh, to ask, found one who is then we know. Yeah, yeah, then you know. No. Who's an, yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe, maybe, yeah. So this is sort of indicated, and I actually don't know either. Like, what is that? Um, but exactly. The means of enforcement are right. that kind of shaming, aren't they? Reputation destruction. Yeah. This person has backwards beliefs or beliefs that are yeah. not catching up. Yeah, you, you 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 haven't spent enough time in, in in sort of the right circles and read read the right books and listened to the right podcasts and yeah. whatever, like to sort of absorb those ideas. Um, and so so this is sort of the new way, you know, various sort of unusual idea. I mean, w one of them was shocking one. So when I first coined this term luxury beliefs in 2019, I, I could never have imagined that sort of the the um, like the, the most powerful and shocking luxury belief would arise just a year later, which is the abolish the police or defund the police movement. Yes, I mean it's just unreal. I mean there, there are surveys from YouGov and, and various other uh, platforms showing that the people who are the most in favor of defunding the police are are the people in the highest income bracket. People who can afford private yeah, security. People who can afford private security. Well, then you so, get into yeah. the costly signaling area where there's a bit of extra work done on this costly signaling thing, and it's really about signaling comparative advantage, mm -hmm. which is what you might call you signal what you can get away with. Mm -hmm. And that would appear to stotting. So if, you know... There are certain behaviors which are costly to everybody, mm. but they're less costly to people who are endowed with a higher element of genetic fitness or status or wealth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the reason these have signaling powers is that in theory, everybody could do them, but it's much easier for you to do them than it is for an average Joe. What's mm. an example of that? Um, well, it would have started out with things like clothing, but then that's lost its relative measure. But you might, well, I'll give you an example of that, which I don't know whether this is true, but it's worth noting that quite a lot of our signaling behavior is unconscious, I yes, think. Yeah. I think we just do it instinctively. Mm. Um, being massively in favor of unlimited immigration, for yep. example, okay. Um, it's If you're a Goldman Sachs lawyer, the consequences of unlimited immigration are going to hit you a lot less rapidly and a lot less... Uh, profoundly. Yeah. Uh, profoundly than if you haven't even got a job to begin with. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And it's worth, it's worth noting this question. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've already got a job, interestingly, no one talking about privilege ever suggests that someone should actually give up their own existing job to hand to someone more deserving. I've never heard that suggestion. Yes. Yeah. Maybe that's what I should do, yeah. you know, if I'm being genuinely sincere. No, no, it's never about that. It's always about other people. You should surrender the vice chairman position. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Perfect. yeah. And perfectly, that is, by the way, I mean, perfectly uh, uh, reasonable as an assertion, but you never heard it made. So, in a sense, people who've already got their Yale degree are pretty safe because they've mm. got a valuable, rare credential, <laughs> and they're not going to be actually challenged uh, you know, I mean, it's an interesting debate, actually, because one of the things that's complicated in the UK um, is that we speak English. Yeah. Okay. Now, nobody ever mentions this. I find this fascinating. Okay. Because, bluntly put, let's imagine you speak Dutch, okay, and you can basically talk to other Dutch people and a few Belgians and a few weird people in South Africa, okay? And then you learn English. You gain internationalism and the ability to operate on the world stage or travel or be a tourist to an extent which a native English speaker would probably have to learn six languages yeah. to yeah. Uh, to attain the same increase. You have to learn Mandarin, Spanish, Portuguese. And then, by the way, you'd end up, you know, I don't know, moving to the Middle East and five of those languages would prove yeah. to be a total waste of time. Yeah. Okay? Whereas English is actually valuable to you everywhere. Yeah. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, what that does lead to is a massive asymmetry in the value of freedom of movement, because there are half a million people in Europe under the age of 30 who speak English well enough to actually function here, 
But if I moved to Poland, I'd be sweeping the streets, right? Because yeah. I don't speak Polish well enough to operate in, to write any Polish ads. That's really interesting because I'd never noticed that some but, of these sort of... Pro- my, my yeah. brother, who's an astrophysicist, mentioned this. He was the first person to mention it. And he said there's... But the strange thing is economics doesn't factor in language. Mm-hmm. Now, do you want an interesting statistic, which is kind of weird, okay? Always. There are more British-born people working in Australia than there are British-born people working in continental Europe. Hmm. Because it's because of the language, because language. Yeah. yeah, sure. Basically, so, so I'd have to move to Poland, marry a Polish girl, spend about seven years on the dole speaking Polish mm. before I could actually. I mean, there may be a huge advantages to that, by the way. Before I could actually function in any kind of a knowledge worker, yeah, uh, you know, anywhere in a non-English speaking country. Yeah, this one noticed something you were doing um, that. You were doing something which was quite taboo uh, at times, which was making what was a, uh, I would say, relatively dispassionate and unemotional and rational mm. uh, argument uh, that would perhaps put a spanner in the wheels of the Remain argument. You know? Yeah, well, I, my, my argument was only that I think working in business for the last 15 years, it was automatically assumed if you were in London yep. that you didn't really have to worry about staff, staff retention, staff well-being, because staff were kind of infinitely replaceable, fungible they just commodity. They keep coming in. And suddenly, yeah, it's COVID as well as Brexit, yes. suddenly you notice that the amount of discussion, you know, I'm... I, you know, I've got a bit of sympathy for Marx, okay? I mean, I don't know if you agree. He was um, Deirdre McCloskey says he was the best social scientist of the 19th century. Unfortunately, he was wrong about all the big things and right about all the small things. Yeah. But the relative importance of capital versus labour, I, do, I don't think capitalism is a... Is a I don't believe the shareholder value movement. I think that's a totally ridiculous way of looking at a business. The interesting thing about a business is you have conflicting interests of investors, employees, and customers. Mm -hmm. And the creative resolution of those three forces is what makes a great business. Okay? Yeah. You know, it's finding a way to satisfy all three constituents. Yes. That's Mm -hmm. what makes business creative and inventive and interesting, not the narrow pursuit of, uh, you know, of short-term profit. Yes. Okay. And that's a diversity of a kind and as well. There, there is a, there's a bit of me, the, the inner Marxist in me goes, it wouldn't be actually all that bad to spend 15 years where companies were a bit worried about where the staff were coming from. Yes, because mm. in London, okay. that's never been a there's problem. There's never been an issue. And by yeah. the way, who can move to London is weird. You can, you can either yeah. already live here mm-hmm. or you can be rich enough to move here or you can move in with a bunch of friends which tends to mean you come from a university. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. If you've got a family, or you can actually do hot bunking, which is what some, let's say, Polish builders will do. They all share a house, okay? Mm-hmm. If, you've already, if you're age 28 and you've already got a family and you're living in Merthyr Tidville, okay, it's impossible to move to London. Yeah. It's just yeah. totally impossible. And you said it's impossible for you to now move out of London. There's not much you could do in Hull, for example. Well, well um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's part of the curse. Uh, that, that's one of the great things I always say. I always envy people like GPs and, yeah. and teachers for the fact they've got a, a completely mobile form of employment. Yeah. Um, academics are quite clever. <laughs> most universities are actually in pretty nice towns. Yes. Okay. Yes. You have cracked that one. Cambridge well, well, is monstrously well, expensive. Yes, there. Cambridge is very nice. I mean, yeah. Yale's in New Haven, so that might yeah, be a true. little bit of a, that, you know, that might be an outlier. But, uh, you know, I, I, I like this. You know, of course, like Marx is a, is, is a very useful uh, framework. And I, I, I think he got some things right. Like, I was reading this book recently, uh, Very Important People by Ashley Mears. And she basically talks about sort of the, the nightclub scene in, in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a 
sociologist, and she sort of basically went um, kind of undercover uh, observing all this. And, and one of the things she points out in her book was that um, in, in Manhattan proper, in some of the wealthiest neighborhoods, for about 10 months out of the year, one third of the apartments are empty. Yeah. Uh, and, and essentially, it's just wealthy people buying them up, and they come you know, maybe for vacation or sort yeah. of you know, renting them out as Airbnbs or something like that. And of course, like a lot of the um, people on sort of the progressive. We also want to talk about students because well, student housing mm. actually drives out family housing because mm. six people sharing a house, mm -hmm. okay, have a weirdly high amount of buying power. You know, right. it's an extraordinarily high income group. Anybody willing to share property mm. in the way that students do, and. I'll tell you a story. We're, we're now in this building, okay? We moved to central London um, from Canary Wharf. And before we moved here, and I'm glad we did because it's fantastic, yeah. okay? But before we moved here, we were looking at a building near Waterloo, okay? Right. Now, bear in mind, we're like the fourth largest ad agency in London. Mm -hmm. And it dropped out of the consideration set. And I said to my boss, I said, why are we no longer considering the Waterloo business? And they said, oh, they've had a rethink. They've decided there's more money to be made out of student accommodation wow. than there is letting to us. <laughs> wow. I kind of yeah. go, okay, so okay. let's get this straight. We're being outbid for real estate <laughs> in central London by a bunch of students. Yes, albeit okay. by a proxy of the people who yeah. administer yeah, this it. Is, this Good. is kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's do, you know, so... So there are a load of nonsenses. I mean, I'm a huge, I, I, I genuinely think that video conferencing can be a really good geographical leveler because I'm a bit of a Georgist, mm. okay? You know, the Henry George, the 19th century uh, um, American economist who made the point, which is that if you have any form of economic activity which depends for its performance on its location, mm -hmm. the gains from that activity tend to accrue to the landowner, not to the person performing the work. Yep. Hmm. So, you know, airport retail would be a classic case where actually uh, many of the external retailers lose money. They're yeah, Cafe to, Nero don't make a killing. For reasons. Yeah. And actually the person who owns the, owns the land makes all the money. Oh, yep. Fascinating. And, you know, one of the interesting things is I see Zoom as effectively George's tech. I mean, there's a beautiful example of George's tech, which is the chattel house. If you ever go to the Caribbean, uh, it happens in the American South where after the abolition of slavery, what happened is that um, the the freed slaves were paid an income, but then the rent on their accommodation set by the landlord, who was also their employer, was more or less equivalent to their level of salary. Okay. So mm -hmm. they developed housing, which was actually mobile. And you mm -hmm. see it in Barbados. It's actually yeah. very attractive, but portable, kind of, it's a one-bedroom portable hut. And so if your landlord demanded too much money, you just found another landlord 500 yards away who'd do you a better deal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it freed you from the depredation of the landowner. Yeah, which I think is really, really interesting as a, you know, we don't look at this enough, but far too much of the economy is in real estate, which is unproductive. And obviously, I know that Ogilvy here are making some move on that because most people here are not here, so to speak. No. Most people aren't here. Look how empty it is out there. Well, interestingly, we had a very lucky break, which is we moved into a great building, which means you can always shrink. Yes. Mm -hmm. if, if th This is one of the interesting things that, that actually prime, really prime location means that we will find no shortage of people from WPP who would be willing to move here. Mm -hmm. Had we still oh, remained in Canary Wharf, we, we, we'd be looking at tumbleweed, to be yeah. honest. Mm -hmm. I want to yeah. follow up on something you said before, Rory, this idea of um, like opening a business in a location where you're losing money, but you stay there for status reasons. Uh, it calls to mind, so I've been having a lot of conversations with, with other young people, especially mm -hmm. people who are, who are sort of uh, in college or have recently graduated. 
And, you know, there's this, this whole big debate about, about college, you know, is college still necessary? You brought up earlier Brian Kaplan's book, The Case Against Education, you know, why is college more expensive than ever uh, at a time when you can get education online for free? You know, you can go on YouTube, you can go on Coursera, there's all these ways to you know, learn to, like, data camp for coding. Scott I mean, Galloway it, writes about this, doesn't I mean, he, about Scott the Galloway. absurd profit margins effectively of running a course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 I mean, there's so many ways to, to, to learn online now. And for young people, why would you go to college still? And, you know, so my, my response to this more recently has been, and I'm curious what you guys think about this, is that you know, education and university is not just about the education. There are all of these sort of ancillary benefits. And I think this connects to Rory's idea. Um, I know you've written in your, in your amazing book, Alchemy, about um, the doorman fallacy. Yeah. Uh, this doorman fallacy, uh, you know, I, I'll let you explain that. But I think it connects to education in an interesting way about, like, why why people would purposely go into debt, especially in the U.S., in the U.S. context. A lot of, a lot of young people are going into debt. Um, and they're still going to college. Why would they choose to do this? You know, it's sort of economically insensible in some ways, but maybe it connects to this idea of like, you will lose money for the status reasons to say, I'm a college graduate. There's some, there's, there's a brand element there. There's a status element. Dating there, element. A dating element I as mean, well. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll pick up on that <laughs> in a very different way to the kind of experience you guys have had in a moment, but mm -hmm. yeah, continue. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, it also connects with, with, with the, the doorman fallacy, which Rory has written about, which is, um, I think this is this idea that, you know, there's a doorman in front of a building and he lets people in and that's ostensibly his, his purpose, right? Is to just sort of open, open and door. close the door. But uh, and a yeah, yeah. A, a really, he's big, recognition, uh, status for the hotel, paying yeah. taxes, and mm -hmm. security. Yeah, well. if yeah. you can you afford know, you it. You don't get yeah. any vagrants falling asleep in front of the hotel. Yeah, and actually, the you know the doorman. And what we tend to do is we define things by its most ostensibly obvious function. Right. If you're a tech firm, you define it in a way that's most susceptible to automation. By the way, most you define every human function <laughs> as as one that makes it highly amenable to automation, so that mm. you can come in and steal the money. Wow. Okay. And the doorman himself is a status symbol to have yep. a doorman out front, you know, and that kind of thing. And so I think that this sort of education, there's this doorman fallacy here where you think the ostensible purpose is to get an education and to learn something. Whereas, you know, the economist Brian Kaplan and others have said that, you know, go going to university, there's also the, you know, the ostensible purpose is education, but the actual purpose is the signaling value of having that college degree. And so, you know, up and, you know, it but may Bill not even Butler, matter how much. The yeah. comedian yeah. He's a great <laughs> blue collar comedian. Right? Yeah. Kind of, have you seen his routine on Schwarzenegger? He's an extraordinary guy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because the extraordinary thing about Bill Burr is if he weren't funny, you'd really hate him. Yeah. Mm. Okay? Yeah. You, yeah. Know, you know, obnoxious Massachusetts, you know, mass hole. Yeah. <laughs> but because he's so dumb. And he made the point about the college admission scandal. Okay. Mm. All these people who bribe their way in by pretending to be world-class water polo players. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay? But he made the point. None of them flunked out. They all graduate. Yeah. Right? It's impossible to fail out at a lot of these schools. You know, it's, really? Yeah, it's, it's unreal. Yeah. I mean, the, the graduation rate for the top universities, you know, uh, at least 95%. So there's sort I of a, a, I had a friend who got yeah. kicked out of Cambridge. It was a major achievement. It required <laughs> yeah. more effort than to get a first, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting, I mean, you have to try. You have yeah, to try. Really well, have it's to like try. Christopher yeah, Hitchens yeah. got a third class from Balliol. And it's like, that must have taken some effort. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Absolutely. And so, yeah. so now that I've flanked out, there, there are other things that, if this education thing is so valuable, why do they not have admissions doorman for lectures? Because mm. surely other people will be trying to get in. Mm. They're not. Why oh, is it right. that when people's yeah. lectures are cancelled, they're pleased? Mm. Because they should be losing out on education. But mm. as long as everybody else's lectures are cancelled, yep. they're no longer at a comparative disadvantage to their peers, so they're happy. Right. There's tons of evidence that shows that effectively, first of all, it's a property business mm -hmm. with a pedagogic sideline. Yeah. You know, many of these universities. But, but it, it, I mean, that idea that it's signaling, um, and okay, it signals more than just your ability to 
you know, perform exams. There's a certain amount of self-discipline required, I yeah. guess. Yeah. You know, but also you're the kind of person who can get disproportionately interested in theoretical things. Mm. Now, do we want the world to be run by such people? Yeah. yeah. It's a really important Well, question. people, yeah, people are obsessed yeah. with abstractions. Lot, well, 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 the first thing I noticed when I came into advertising is there are people who basically, if you said, can you write a, can you write a, uh, a 2,000-word essay on the Delian Confederacy or the Peloponnesian Wars, would basically <laughs> find this the most difficult thing they'd ever had to do in their life. If you give them a practical problem where mm. there is some benefit, yeah. they develop a kind of innate ingenuity. Yes. But here's an interesting question, right? Okay, IQ tests were developed in the analog age. Okay. Mm. Now, I'm, I'm a bit sectoral out of the IQ test, partly because the wordy bit and the numbery logical bit, yep. I'm pretty good at. Okay. Yep. Those fucking shapes. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Follow this. The spatial. Okay. Yeah, so there's like a triangle, the then well. it goes stripey, uh, and then the triangle yeah, gets a TV aerial on one side of the yeah. triangle. And then, and then there's a space and you're supposed to put in, I go, could be fucking everything, yeah. to be honest. Engineers right? are good at those ones, though. Is yeah, that what yeah. engineers do? Yeah. yeah. But the interesting thing to me, right, is... Wouldn't actually computer games be a really good IQ test? Yeah. Hmm. Okay? Because I look at my daughter mastering a computer game, and it yep. involves a level of intelligence I couldn't even possibly muster. Yes. Yeah. Okay? And I also remember, funnily enough, going to an airport, and there was a guy fiddling with the self-check-in <laughs> machine for his luggage. And I went over to help. <laughs> it was a guy with a Nobel Prize in economics. <laughs> okay? Yeah. So there's a bit of me which goes, these IQ tests have basically been decided by academics yep. to prove that academics are the most intelligent people in the world and therefore the most valuable. Well, I don't want to over, you know, so so I'm I'm also <laughs> critical of IQ tests as well and I and I agree with, you know, basically all of this. But in that I think that it's it's people especially academic types over overvalue its importance. Um, but at the same time, I think it's it's a, it's a useful piece of information, but it's only one piece of the puzzle. Yep. And, you know, in my case, you know, so I, I was a terrible student and got really bad grades. Yep. But part of what what helped me to recognize my own capability was uh, was when I took the ASVAB, which is essentially like the SAT for the military. And we'd mentioned before they have this uh, cutoff, this threshold of about 33rd percentile, which is I think corresponds roughly like 80, 85 IQ. Yep. Um, and I scored very well on this. And the recruiter was sort of explaining this to me. And I had no idea. I mean, I read a lot and like I would sort of um, play around and do the math exercises in my textbook, but I wouldn't do any of the homework. I wouldn't yeah. pay attention to class, but I would sort of, you know, I was, I guess, somewhat of an autodidact, you know, when I wasn't smoking weed and breaking into buildings. And, <laughs> and watching and so, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And, and watching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? Let's come on to that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so, um, so I, you know, I take these tests and then of course, like later I took the SAT and the GRE and all this other stuff. And, you know, more recently I've looked at the actual research on this and, um, there was a, an interesting study. I think this was in uh, in Chicago, where this. So so typically in 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 the school system there, uh, the way that they recognize gifted you know gifted kids, you know kids who tend to be some, you know, some talented or whatever is uh, through teacher recommendations and parent parental recommendations. You know, sort of adults giving their subjective decision of oh this kid's you know something interesting about this kid. Let's put him in this gifted class. Well, what these researchers did is basically gave all of the kids IQ tests, just compulsory. Mm. Everyone mm -hmm. take the standardized test, and the number of low income kids and ethnic minority kids. Uh, who entered the gifted programs actually increased yeah. as a result yeah. of this. I buy that. And, and so yeah. there are sort of um, you know drawbacks and benefits to these tests, but I think we just have to have this sort of um, a, a distance understanding of what 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 they can do, but that they're definitely not everything. They you have a have, function, but they're right, not absolute. Not everyone who scores highly on these are going to be uh, you know superstars, and everyone who scores lower on them are sort of destined for failure. They give you one piece of information along with all the other information yes, that you can collect about a person. Yeah. I completely right? agree. Yeah. And, and we've got to be careful because you can game them. So the grammar school mm -hmm. system in England. Uh, there was a kind of decency 
uh, it was a kind of um, uh, non-compete, informal non-compete agreement in the 1960s and 70s about grammar schools, which is your kid took what was called the 11 plus. Yeah. And if he passed, uh, he went to grammar school. And if he didn't, he didn't. Um, and there was no, and even actually in my primary school education, there was no kind of notion of teaching to the test. That would have been mm. considered slightly unethical. And then and actually get putting ambushed. your kid in, putting your kid in for private tutoring on the, the 11 plus would We're have been considered it. gaming the system. And the idea was, you know, okay, system knows best. Everybody goes in. And I spoke to a guy who narrowly missed yep. in Kent because Kent still has grammar schools. And he said, I turned up at school one morning and they said, well, we're not going to do the standard lessons this morning. We're going to do a test. He had no prior knowledge that this wow. thing was happening. Wow. Now, now, if you look at it in where I live, it literally preoccupies parents for years in advance. Hmm. And so it loses its measure then. Hmm. So it, it's it's Goodhart's law, isn't it? I think any any it's, metric that becomes a target loses its value as a metric. Yeah, yeah. Because the extent to which you're pursuing the metric distorts the value of the metric. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I had a weird one on that. It's, it's kind of a tangent, but they, they uh, I was not not to make everything about my personal history, but um, I was also put in these sort of special needs em, uh, environments, and I was given extra time for exams because, like I said, I didn't want to do the work. Mm. They thought the solution was to make the exams longer, as if you know, <laughs> like that would be a benefit to me. But no, they gave me extra time, mm. and it only occurred to me about ten years later. I was like, well, doesn't that make it a different test? Isn't mm. the test what mm. can you do in an hour? And then if well, this kid gets an hour and twenty, am I doing a different test at that point? It, yeah. And it, you, you could accuse it of being slightly gaming the system in a different yeah, way. There's so many games. I mean, you know, when I was an undergrad, I, I knew I can, you know, count on maybe four or five hands the number of students that I met who um, would, you know, basically claim to have some kind of a learning disability either to get more time on tests or to get out. You know, they would, it, it was sort of uh, understood, implicitly understood that you could basically pretend to have dyslexia in order to get out of the foreign language requirement. And so, you know, I knew, I knew students who uh, like, oh, I, I want to study Spanish or French or whatever it is. And it's just taking too much of my time. And so then they go to the university administration and they jump through all the hoops and basically say, oh, I have dyslexia. I don't have to take those classes anymore. Right. And so anytime you introduce those kinds of uh, the ability to game something, you will find people who will sort of, you know, find those soft spots and, and you know, find, find it's what's also very easier. unfair to the significant minority of people for whom that's an absolutely genuine disadvantage. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that also becomes slightly devalued, doesn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. yeah. Because um, now when you say, oh, I have dyslexia, now people don't know. Like, do you genuinely have it or are you one of these sort of cheaters? Yeah. And, you know, so, we, yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's really unfair. Um, I would, I'm just going to take a brief tangent before we come back on because we got excited about Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and I want to talk about your... Was that a Washington Post or a New York Times It was article? in the New York Times New York last Times. year, yeah. So we want to talk about that, but I briefly just want to give my perspective when we were talking about universities and the value thereof because both of you were describing it as being a kind of a status ascension thing. My university experience was very different. I, I, I had a kind of not red brick sort of mainstream university experience. Lots of people now get themselves into a lot of, a lot of debt, not to necessarily ascend the hierarchy, but to spend three years off kind of extending their teenage years, you know, drinking a lot, partying oh, a lot, yeah. not turning up to lectures uh, or, or only turning up as much as they have to, and then at the end going to work at Pizza So Express. the interesting question is, what are they really doing? What are mm. they doing? Uh, now, of course, the networks you develop are hugely valuable because right. one of the reasons why it's so difficult to dislodge a premium university uh, from... It's, and at risk of name dropping, I was talking to Steven Pinker about this because uh. I was having a bit of a tease about Harvard being a branch of Louis Vuitton. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, 
you don't go to the university which you think is the best university. You go to the university which Other you people. think everybody else thinks is the best yep. because you're buying a peer group or you're buying peer group approval. You're not buying actual utility. Yeah. Okay? Now, it's very difficult. Luxury goods often survive very long and hard because in order to change the status of Harvard or Louis Vuitton steamer trunks, okay, you don't just have to change one person's mind or one person at a time. You've got to choose, change everybody's mind simultaneously. That's why it took a pandemic to get Zoom use yes. up to a reasonable level because you had to get everybody to start using it behaving differently mm, all at, at the same time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the, it's, it's a network effect. It's, um, and also it requires critical mass. Now, the interesting thing with Harvard, bar some absolutely massive, like, child abuse scandal, you know, where the entire faculty... Yes, everyone was involved. ...paedophiles, or that, you know, yeah. Jeffrey well, Epstein is still alive and controlling <laughs> things from behind the scenes, if right? If they turn out to be like a sort of spectre kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, some sort of spectre. Um, there's nothing you can do. Now, there was a guy, and I'm fascinated by this, because it's a case of a mathematician being a brilliant game theorist and marketer. So, okay. the University of Warwick launches in the UK... And they offer the position as the head of maths at Warwick to a guy called Christopher Zeman, who was, now I've probably got this wrong, but I think he was the world's leading expert in matrix topology, whatever that may be, okay? And he said, look, I'm only prepared to take this job if someone can say Oxford, Cambridge, and Warwick without it sounding like a weird sentence. Yeah. Okay? And he said, there's only one way I know of doing that. He said, you want me to hire a load of mathematicians in a load of different fields. If we do that, I'll get the 177th best person in number theory and the 400th best person in, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. Okay, my, my knowledge of, of mathematical <laughs> areas of specialism is kind of running out at this point. He said, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to hire people in matrix topology. Okay. Now I can't get the second best guy in the world. I think he assumed he was the best, which was probably true. Okay. Can't get this. He's got tenure at Princeton or something. But I can get the third best, the fourth best, the sixth best, and the eighth best. We will be as a university untouchable in this field, yeah. even though no one's heard of the university yeah, yeah. because it's new. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then ten years later, we'll hire the best guy in number theory, and we'll get him to do the same thing. And so. You can only compete with Harvard, Yale, Princeton if you said, okay, we're just going to be about music or we're just going to be about drama or we're just going to be about sports. Okay, I imagine for, I don't know my American sports that well, but UNC for basketball hmm. is probably much more prestigious than the Caltech. I think yeah. it's oh, oh, well, yes, yes. <laughs> okay, I, yeah, right? that would be, okay. Yeah. And you can win in a narrow field first, mm -hmm. but it's unbelievably difficult because you're, you're effectively having to solve the problem where you need everybody to change their mind simultaneously yeah because you're buying a peer group you're buying what people think of a harvard degree you're not buying a harvard degree mm. and that means they're the best luxury goods brands in the world universities those mm. very top ivy league universities yep. are un almost untouchable my barring... brother actually said that yeah I, he wasn't enjoying being at oxford i said i thought you wanted to go he said no i wanted a degree from oxford mm. yeah right yeah. well i think so so beyond sort of the elite universities this idea of you know why do people go to why do people go to college you know besides the education i think of course like they want to be around other 18 or 19 year old yeah. students they well, want to hang out with their you know they want to meet new friends of course dating like you had mentioned social life um sort of extending their adolescence i mean that was one of the things that that surprised me so i entered undergrad when i was 25 years old and I, everyone I was else just was 18 uh, yeah, everyone else was 18, 19, 20, you know, that, a little bit younger than me. And so even though I wasn't that much older, I, I distinctively sensed um, that I felt much older than them. Yeah. 
because if you go real world right, experience. Right, exactly. I mean, yeah. you, you know, when you start driving when you're 16, you like I had I got my first job when I was 15. Yeah. You know, I I wasn't um studying for the SAT. I was t- picking up extra shifts at the pizza shop. You know, like yeah. that was sort of my life compared to them who you know, they were still living at home and they you know, maybe maybe had nannies and these kinds of things. Yeah. And so when they were know, studying, were you in Afghanistan mm-hmm. or something like that? Yeah, something, you know, yeah, yeah, I was, you know, deployed when they when they were, you know, in middle school or something like that. And yeah. so you know, when when I saw, you know, I, I I make this joke that like I've I've been I've rented cars with my undergrad friends, and you know they're 22, 23 years old by this point, and they haven't driven a car since they were sixteen. You know, they get their license as soon as they're of age, then they go off to college, and then they take Ubers for five years, and then they, yeah. they rent a car, and they're like ten and two, like how yeah. do I turn? Like you know, they're nervously shaking, like oh, we definitely need to get an automatic <laughs> because I can't drive a stick, like that whole thing, and I'm like. You're a 23 year old man. Like yeah, to me, yeah, 23 yeah. is I like agree. you're a staff sergeant in the military. Like that's what a 23 year old was to me. But for yeah. them, it's like you know they're not much more than a you're kid. You're driving a truck. At yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, and so yeah, so so that's one element. But then there there are sort of different. Um, I, I've noticed this observation b- w- between social classes for sort of extending their education even beyond beyond that. So what I've noticed is. Um, for a lot of my friends from high school, who you know maybe they weren't necessarily college material. Um, they still entered a community college. I don't know if you have community colleges in the UK. Well, sorry, uh, this is like yeah. Um, you it would have been a polytechnic, I guess, right. probably yeah. or similar or a sixth form college, conceivably. But yeah, yeah, it's not um, quite an equivalent. They're yeah. trying to convert all the polys into prestigious universities now, anyway, <laughs> for the real estate benefit. But go on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, so yeah, my, my they'd enter community college and they had no necess- They didn't necessarily have like an intention of of you know sort of get, following the program, staying there for two years, maybe transferring to a four university. That's what they told people. But really, what they wanted to do. Was was sort of work part time, sort of hang out with other young people, you know, take one class at a time. A lot of, you know, I have friends who to this day, you know, age 30, 12 years later, they're still in community college, wow. sort of like in this holding pattern, one class at a time. And but they can always tell people like, oh, yeah, I'm studying. You know, that's like that's a great catch all answer to everything. Like, what are you up to these days? Oh, I'm studying. You know, I'm, I'm working on my degree. That, you can say that forever, also yeah. in the UK, the universities have managed to pull this stunt where when you're about 20, you can borrow what is it? It would be £27,000 a year for three years tuition. Mm-hmm. Actually, if you have four, okay, it's going to be it's going to be even more. It's going to be 36000 plus a loan for living expenses, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, that's basically so you can improve your mating and career prospects. Now, imagine, okay, a parallel universe where the Ford Motor Company said a lot of people are having trouble mate, mating and finding girlfriends because they don't have a Ford Mustang. Yeah. So we're going to get the government to instigate Mustang loans. Okay? Yeah. And what would, by the way, happen is that That's everybody would then start ludicrously customizing their Mustangs to the an insane outs. degree because now having a Mustang would be no longer a market. Loses the signaling extension. value. But it's signaling value to a huge yeah. extent. Now, the other thing that's terrible here is, one, you can't spend that loan on anything else. Mm-hmm. Now, this goes against all the principles of free market capitalism, which is people know best to know best what to do with their own money. There must be literally millions of people who would be better off spending that upfront. It's an upfront loan which you don't have to pay off if you don't basically earn above a certain level. Okay. Mm. So if now think of the entrepreneurial value of those loans if they weren't directed towards education, but you could start a window cleaning business or you could buy a van Just give or you could cash. start a cafe yeah. or a right. restaurant, right? Yeah. There are many ways you could you could sort of earn money. You don't have to follow that path. Because I, th- I think there's a great idea by Roger L. Martin, who's a Canadian kind of business guru, who says, no, no, the way we do tax um, uh, exemption is wrong, okay? At the moment, the first X thousand you earn every year is tax-free. He says that's wrong. The way it should work is that the first... 
let's say, 200,000 Canadian dollars in your life you earn is tax-free, right. after which you start paying tax on everything. So it basically weights tax exemptions early in life, which is when you really need the money. As okay. opposed to later on when you can get a duck and wheat. The weird thing is about being 55 is you actually have more money, but actually you have fewer wants. Yeah. Mm. And that maybe that, by the way, that might be evolutionary as well. I think mm. there are all kinds of reasons why when you get older, um, your consumption patterns change and mm. also why you become more conservative. Yep. Mm. You know, it's terrible going on holiday with kids because they want to go somewhere <laughs> new. And I go, we went to Madeira three years ago and it was very nice. And they go, I want to go to the Rio Carnival. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's partly because if you think about it, gains to experimentation early in life, okay, mm. you have a long time to benefit and you have less experience to draw on. When you're 55, you have more experience to draw on. You know what you like. And mm. also, you have less remaining life for the experiments to actually pay off. Yes. Mm. So that, there's a double whammy as to why you become more conservative when you get older. But I mean, the underground motivations for not releasing the equivalent of student Ooh. loan in just a pure upfront uh, business loan or otherwise would be just the resentment for young people having even more opportunities. We've got to give them uh, at I, least I mean, a hard time there somewhere. There was an argument that said that the... Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which we had in the UK, basically produced a load of great bands. Yeah. And the extraordinary thing was, apparently, you had loads of people who were in a band. And when you told them, no, it's not a band, it's a business, you've got to think of it like this, you've got to prepare. Yeah. They actually, you know, and there's another argument that the Ford Transit produced the great revolution in British music because you could finally fit a band in one vehicle. Yeah. You see, mm. one driver, roadie, drum kit, it would all go in the same thing. But... Um, the, but the interesting thing, I think, also, the other thing I would do is I would reserve a percentage of university places to mature students who've done something else first. Hmm. Yeah. Because what we've done by expanding university is we've now put a kind of invisible flag over the heads of people who don't go to university. Yeah. When, when I went to university, having a Cambridge degree was necessary, well, sorry, was sufficient but not necessary to getting a nice job. Now it's necessary but not sufficient. Yeah. Because we've expanded university to such an extent that it's become a necessity, whereas it used to be, you know, what you might call an optional, an yeah. option. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now I'd reserve, I'd create a social norm around going to university slightly later in life when you did, when you've done mm -hmm. something else first. This mm -hmm. was... Um, and there'd be a yeah. double win because, by the way, I bet the other students at Yale benefited a hell of a lot more from you than you did from them in many ways, <laughs> in the sense that your Possibly. life skills. When I was at university, there was a guy there um, he was doing architecture. He was 45, 10 years younger than I am now, but we used to call him Gramps. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm ashamed to say, okay? But he'd previously organized the Isle of Wight festivals. He was one of the Falk brothers who did right. that. And he'd been an Art Deco furniture dealer. I learned more from him than I did from the entire faculty of the University of Cambridge. Yeah. Mm. You know, life skills, you know, really handy things. You know, if you're stuck in a big city, yeah. you, you, you know, you need to make some phone calls. More generalized knowledge. Go to, mm. the, be go to the best hotel in town and order a pot of tea. So yeah. There's mm. a limit to how much they can charge you for a pot of tea. And you can use their phone. You can use their telephone directories. You know, and shit like that never would have occurred to me. That was yeah, a much more valuable lesson. Go to the best hotel in town and order a pot of tea. No one was teaching <laughs> me that in the lectures. Yeah. But it's proved useful, yeah. you know, mm. once a month. But also this guy had basically, you know, tacit skills and experience, which actually academics are remarkably weak in. It was hmm. tremendous. But, I mean, this yeah. is a... Oh, hi, Anna. Um, do you need... Do you need us in a, I mean, Ten more minutes is okay, isn't it? Five more minutes. Who, who's next? Who is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I can be ten minutes late for that. That's fine. Which room is it in? Huddle. Uh, it huddles on the first floor, isn't it? At the end, on the left. Is that right? First floor, yeah. Yeah, on the end of the 
Perfect. Okay, I'll be there in 10 to 15. No problem at all. Feels like I've only been it's doing 15 minutes. 10 to 15, no <laughs> set, set the fire alarm off or something like that. Create a diversion. <laughs> Start a fire. <laughs> well, then, um, uh, thanks, by the way, for uh, 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 trying to buy some time for the long-suffering Anna. I really quickly wanted to get in the New York Times article that Rob wrote, yes, uh, partially because uh, my family grew up watching the West Wing. I watched a bit of the West Wing. Hmm. And then when um, Rob said, noticed the West Wing isn't very good. And I was like, finally, someone yeah. said it. It's yeah, like, yeah. it's okay if you're an affluent liberal type, yes. but it's dripping in cliche. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one of the things that I point out in that article is that, um, you know, so when I first watched it, it was a recommendation to me by a couple of Ivy League students. And they said, oh, this is the best show ever. You got to watch it. And I love the dialogue. I, uh, and I love the actors. I, I like the sort of Sorkinese, like the snappy dialogue. Is yeah. it, you know, it kept my attention for two seasons. I couldn't finish the series, but it was enough for two, you know, it's yeah, you know, yeah, 20 plus yeah. inch. But, mm. But then um, more recently, um, you know, as I was sort of doing research for that piece and trying to figure out like, well, why didn't I like this show? Like, what was it? Trying to figure out the sort of hidden class elements. And I watched this uh, discussion between Aaron Sorkin, mm -hmm. a creator of the West Wing with David Brooks, the New York Times columnist. And they had a discussion where, where Sorkin basically said, actually, when we, when we um, aired the first season, uh, it wasn't very popular at all. But it was uh, very popular with a certain uh, sub-demographic, which were uh, people, uh, it, it was households that earned more than $75,000 a year, households in which someone there had a college degree and households that subscribe to the New York Times. And each one of those on their own is a class marker, right? So there's the, the marker of, of, of um, economics, right? Like you earn a certain amount of money, uh, there's someone there with a college degree, and there's someone there who subscribes to the New York Times, which is its own sort of cultural capital, sort yes. of someone who reads that, that, that uh, publication. And I wasn't a member of any of those. And so it no. totally made, it makes sense. I'm like, oh, this is like, what is this show? Like, I don't know. Like, I just, it didn't, it didn't capture my interest very much. But I, I now understand why it's so popular with, with uh, sort of, you know, affluent people, yeah. upper middle class people, you know. And of course, at one point, liberals. Leo McGarry, the chief of staff says, we don't do the wrong thing because we're the Democrats. It's oh, like, did, he, did he say that? Oh, I don't even Yeah, wow. Okay, yeah. See, I was so apolitical by that time that that didn't even register to me. Like, I, I didn't understand the sort of political conflict, the discussions they were having on that. Like, of course, I was sort of aware they would have discussions about abortion or whatever, and I could keep up with that. But I didn't have this sort of strong, passionate feeling yep. the way that uh, kids who grew up in upper middle class and upper class yep. households do, where politics is just a part of the conversation. The parents read The New York Times or The Economist or yep. The Times or whatever. Like, they sort of are keeping up with the sort of cultural social cultural trends whereas in my household you know my my mom and her partner they subscribe to the red bluff daily news which mm -hmm. is our small town of thirteen thousand people working class town it's in oregon isn't um it? it's, it's in northern california, northern california. pretty yeah, close okay. to the oregon border yeah. but i mean it is a very sort of rural blue collar area and you know we, we couldn't afford cable so there was no msnbc or cnn or Fox, any, any of that stuff and so political conversations are just not as uh, prominent in a part of everyday life for working yep. class people, whereas upper class people are obsessed with politics. Yeah, it's the well, there's a sort of pretension, yeah. okay, hmm. to pretending that um, when you talk about world affairs, because 90% of our lives, 95% of our lives are experienced locally. Yes. Okay? Mm -hmm. yes. It would make more difference to my life day to day, to be absolutely honest, if they sorted out the potholes in Kent County Council than if some <laughs> major decision was taken around, you know, economics at a governmental level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's it's status enhancing always to talk about geopolitics and yep. problems mm -hmm. at that level. Whereas most people experience life ninety five percent of it's local. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, sort of ordinary people have real problems to worry about yep. sort of day to day getting your kids to school or your job or your work or your house or whatever. And yeah, w once you have all of those things taken care of, where mm. all of those sort of mundane everyday worries are solved, then you can sort of signal like, oh, I don't have to worry about those things because I'm talking about sort of geopolitical events or, you know, whatever obscure elections that are coming up or yeah, whatever. And we're so. in this on elections, we're in this weird era where uh good and evil has migrated away from religion and art and into politics. So if you announce yourself to be a conservative, in, in this industry at least, you would be marked out as, well, for execution. Like, you know, Because <laughs> people, a lot of people I know, young people, they kind of equivocate uh, conservatism just with uh, being nasty and intolerant, which I think is a great tragedy. Because most people live very conservative lives, like we started by saying. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's much of a correlation between someone's political views and how decent they are as a human being. No. Uh, there, there might be a bit, but it's certainly not a, it's not a reliable indicator. Well, so, so on this point, Rory, so I'm actually doing a, you know, a bunch of uh, research right now for my thesis, so my dissertation for my PhD, and uh, a lot of my work is on moral judgment, sort of how people uh, assess other people's behavior, whether it's right or wrong. And there's so much work on political orientation and moral judgment. You know, conservatives think this is right and wrong, and liberals think that is right and wrong. A lot of Jonathan Haidt's work and people like that. Mm. But in my research, what I'm finding, and I'm using these massive data sets, World Value Survey, European Social Survey, these are just massive data sets. And what I'm finding is that age is a much stronger predictor of sort of moral judgment and moral orientation than political orientation. And basically what this means is that you, you'll you know much more about- It's stronger than race, isn't it? Uh, I, I, I think I've looked at some data. It wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't surprise yeah, yeah, me. I, yeah. I haven't looked specifically at race, but basically, you know, my research indicates that how old a person is will tell you much more about how they sort of, their moral worldview than their political orientation. And so, you know, in some ways, uh, an aged uh, liberal is it has has much different moral judgments than a young liberal compared to a, a young conservative, right? So so it's it's sort of interesting that that age is actually a much stronger predictor of this, and and political orientation doesn't actually tell you that much yeah. um, about a person the way that that uh, generation and age and cohort and those kinds of things might. The, the gist of this research, you know, is basically a set of four studies, uh, various um, various data sets indicating, and this is not just in the U.S., it's not just in the U.K. This is worldwide. I'm I'm consistently fighting this pattern of you know, political orientation is a much weaker effect than, than age. And age is still a strong predictor, even when you control for political orientation. Meaning, in other words, that if you have a 70-year-old liberal and a 30-year-old liberal, um, the 70-year-old liberal, and, and I control for education, I control for income, all of these other sort of socio-demographic variables, the older person is, is sort of more conservative, actually, in their moral worldview in terms of how wrong they assess various behaviors like um, uh, taking a bus without paying the fare, or cheating on your taxes, or even things like 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 physical violence, uh, political violence, mm -hmm. all of those things. Older people, regardless of their politics, uh, judge those things to be more wrong. Yeah, uh, and, and, you know, again, it's sort of interesting because you would think like, oh, if you are more judgmental of theft or of violence and all of those things, you know, maybe you have a, maybe you're more conservative, more liberal. We're so trained to think in that way of like, you know, someone's disposition as political, but really, there's an age effect here as well. And one thing that I, I, I'm not sure what's going on. You know, I've, I've had conversations with my PhD supervisor and other academics about this. Like, is this a, a generational effect? Uh, or, or is this a, a sort of an age effect? In other words, um, is this does everyone inevitably become like this? Do they become more morally judgmental as they age, um, or, or, is it a cohort? or is it a cohort effect? Like people who were born in 1950 are like this, but it's yeah, not I really like hope this. the people our yeah. age aren't going to carry these views throughout life. Are you well, suggesting they might? I am suggesting they might because a lot of the data I'm looking at goes like way far back, uh, back into the 1980s. So I'm looking at you know 70 year olds from 1980 compared to a 20 year old in 1980. That difference exists. Bobby Duffy's so book generations is mm. worth a look it's just okay. come out he was the 
He was a market researcher, very senior market researcher for many years. And he's just written, he's now an academic, I think, at King's College London. But that's an interesting mm. book because some things are, uh, some things are cohort effects and some things are just a product of being older. Yeah. You know, but, the argument is that a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality, <laughs> all that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think something that's happening now is that, you know, there's a, uh, an old sociologist called Emil Durkheim, and he basically had this idea that, um, like, the, the sort of uh, expansion of, of, of moral condemnation. Uh, so basically, no matter what the sort of moral norms are in a community, uh, if you eliminate them, new ones will arise, mm -hmm. essentially. And I think that this is sort of what what's happening with um, one of the examples that he gave was uh, even at a nunnery or like like a monastery where basically you know everyone's adhering to you know, very very strict moral codes and everyone's you know, but they still find ways to sort of pick things out like look what you just did wrong there uh, yeah. that, that they sort of invent as a consequence of everyone behaving very well they have to find new ways to and so I think there's there might be something going on now in the modern era where you know, generally speaking, we we've been, especially younger people, have been trained to adopt this sort of non-judgmental attitude. You know, if someone breaks the law or someone does this or that, it's like, well, we don't know their circumstances and that kind of thing. We're sort of more permissive, but at the same time, um, young people are extremely uh, like morally spirited oh, about yeah. various things, yeah. right? Like these sort of newfangled moral movements yeah. that a lot of you know a lot of older people. You know, I mentioned my mother earlier, who's sort of like, and I tell her about all these movements on 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 campuses and campus culture, and even though she herself is a liberal, she's Sort of like what's going on there? I don't really understand this, and I think this might be what's going on is that if you're a 20 year old or you know a young person who's uh, educated in a university and you're trained to be non-judgmental about all of these sort of conventional moral violations, now you have to invent new ones. Now yeah. You have to find new ways to pinpoint what people are doing. Were wrong. you at Yale at the time when Nicholas Christakis got that extraordinary kind of response? Because yeah. I know him, and what's so bizarre about that is if there were a kind of Nobel Prize for the world's most decent guy, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nicholas would be in the running every year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, yeah. he said something which liberal students 20 years earlier, well, rather he defended his wife for saying, why he had to defend his wife, by the way, <laughs> is another another question we might ask. But for saying yeah. effectively, when choosing a Halloween costume, uh, yeah, use you. your own judgment, yeah. okay? Yes. Which... You know, it, presumably in the 1960s and 1970s would have re been regarded as obviously commonsensical and a healthy pushback against the authoritarian uh, role of the university in attempting to police something yep. like a yeah. Halloween costume, which is fairly context sensitive, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, we all dress at fancy dress parties in ways we wouldn't dress to go to the office. That's it's, right. It's like humor. You know, you go to a comedy club, you expect to hear things you wouldn't hear in a business meeting because them is the rules. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what was so strange is that they absolutely turned on him for more or less suggesting that individual judgment might have a role to play in selecting what you wear to a Halloween party. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, he, yeah, I, I was there. That was my first semester at Yale, like seeing the uh, sort of uprising among the undergrads. And I, I read that email from Erica Christakis, you know, sort of defending freedom of expression. You know, if you wear, you know, if you see someone wearing something that offends you, you should talk to that person. You know, we're all adults here. And I read that email five, six, seven times. And then I would ask people around me, like, can you, ex like other students, can you explain to me what was offensive about this? And that was one of the moments where I realized like I, I had just come from a completely different social milieu because even the more, say, more conservative-leaning students who disagreed with the protests, they still understood why that email would be offensive. Like they still understood this sort of um, the, the sort of moral code around campus and, and around uh, the, the sort of social environment, even if they disagreed with it. Whereas I, you know, well, number well, now I, did, I know that I disagree with it, but at that time I just didn't understand it. And, you know, that was like sort of a very um, you know, rapid learning experience 
experience for me about like what's going on what what are the new moral taboos now what are you allowed to say versus not allowed to say and yeah like you know i agree that yeah, i've met nicholas christakis is very uh you know just like the definition of a, a, a sort of a gentleman and uh very good guy i've, I've met his wife eric christakis yeah. as well and like he had a brace for covid when he spoke to sam harris just before the pandemic as yeah, well he was I mean, really he, helpful yeah he mm. was uh one of the sort of uh early the canaries. Um, canaries in the coal mine and yeah. like, writing these long twitter threads like basically like i remember that time i was extremely nervous in march of 2020 and he yeah. would sort of calm me down he was like hey what's about to happen guys yeah, yeah, done exactly. it before. he also yeah. he also worked as a doctor in the south side of chicago yeah more or less as a volunteer mm. i mean an extraordinarily good guy by yeah. normal moral standards yeah. but there's a kind of princess of the p thing where you're yeah. not really signaling your outrage you're signaling your sensitivity to outrage as evidence of what high status opinions you use mm. and how sensitive you are to absurd nuances yeah yep. you know yeah. in the way that at the court of louis the 14th okay right. you know yeah, yeah. tiny differences in dress mm. became a, a you know a status signifier mm -hmm. you know tiny little detail in the same like way that. as like tiny additions to acronyms like we were open by discussing yeah, yeah, yeah. and they're almost things. worse because they're impenetrable to people outside mm. so I'll, I'll give you a story from um, one of my contemporaries went for an interview at lloyd's of london in what would, must have been 1987 mm. okay and he was told by someone if you turn up to the interview in slip on shoes you won't get the job Hmm. May or may not have been true, okay? By the way, I think that's appalling, okay? Yeah, just, just to be clear, okay? But at least the rule is explicit. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's a good point, at least, you know, so, no, okay, I, I, you can make a lot of arguments. It's unfair. Other people have to go out and buy a pair of stout brogues, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, but at least that's an explicit rule, which is mm -hmm. we don't do that. Whereas actually, when these things become more and more impenetrable and more and more subtle, they actually become more and more exclusionary in many mm. ways. And they're designed entirely for that very quality. Hence the propulsion mm. up the hierarchy. Yep. It's like the new upper classes, the people who understand the more and more obscure definitions. Mm. Yeah. The people who kind of set the pace, like the people who uh, sort of get to determine what these rules are. And then the rest of us, you know, you, they, they sort of pick out like, oh, you don't know what we're talking about. And yeah. therefore, and I, yeah, I saw this play out um, you know, there. I saw it play out at Cambridge as well. With the So straight after the USAF, in the USAF, yeah. that memo yeah. would not have been considered controversial i think I, it's fair to say yeah I, yeah i just i was just totally bewildered by all of that and and yeah i mean so so again at cambridge with uh, the dissertation of, of jordan peterson and I, yeah it's just um this, this sort of repeated uh move the 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 actions of, of this movement have been um interesting for me to to witness and and i think it has informed a lot of my research and a lot of the things that i'm interested in and you know in part why i wrote that that, that you know pretty long piece in in the times about uh, the new york times about the fresh prince of bel-air and west wing and all of these things and how that had helped me so okay yeah all right we must wrap it up there. Okay. Um, Rory Sutherland, Rob Henderson, thank you so much. And of course, Anna Cairns behind the camera, but the silent hero of all this, thank you for sorting this out for us. Huge yeah. thanks. Thank, thank you great. very much indeed. Great stuff. Let's do what we couldn't do before. Absolutely. Thanks, great. Thank you. Thank you.